Welcome. Subject of this talk is the focal point, the Kaaba or the Christ. And we're going to have a look at those first three words in detail, the focal point. One of the interesting things about Judaism and Islam is that they've both had <coughs> a focal point. Judaism, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness at the time of Moses, eventually replaced by the temple. Uh, known in Islam and recognized as Bayatul Muqaddas, the holy house. But in Islam, it has been the Kaaba and Mecca, known to Muslims simply as Bayatullah. In Exodus 25, verses 8 to 9, we read that Moses was commanded by God to create a sanctuary with a veil shielding the holy place where his presence was from the outside and had a mercy seat above it. Aaron was the high priest. There was a cloud that settled over the uh, mercy seat. By day it was visible, by night it even shone, it was luminous. And God said in Exodus 29, 43 to 45, there, I'm just emphasizing that point, the focal point, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I'll consecrate to serve me as priests. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Well, by the time of Solomon, this was the tabernacle that uh, had long been uh, part of the Israelite form of worship that maintained the Ark of the Covenant in it. But David decided in 1 Kings 5 verse 5, I purpose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said, sorry, Solomon speaking, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And so Solomon set about over a long period of time of building a magnificent temple with the same structure, the veil, the holy place, and so on. And when he was finished and was dedicated to the worship of God in Israel, the Lord sanctified it in these words. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. That was God's way of saying that he was very happy with what had been done and it would be the new focal point of worship in Israel. And these words of Solomon on the day in which he sanctified the new temple are important here. From 1 Kings, 1 Kings 8, 27 to 30. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house which I have built yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, so that your eyes may be opened night and day towards this house. And hearken to the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Yes, here in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. By this time things were different. In the wilderness the nation of Israel had been kept close to that tabernacle at all times so that the whole nation knew where it was and they had to in fact gravitate around it. They were told always that if it moved, if the glory, if the light, the cloud moved, they had to go with it and if it stopped they had to stay where it was. But by the time of Solomon many of the Jews had been spread further afield into what is now Lebanon, even to Egypt and elsewhere. So Solomon was virtually saying to God, well now the people can't be here all the time, right where your glory is manifested. But no matter where they are, scattered abroad, when they turn, 
and they face this place, the focal point, no matter where they are, then know that they are identifying with you. Hear their prayer and forgive their sin. Now, the Kaaba in Islam has been very similar. As the Jews faced Jerusalem, in that passage we read, so in Islam, the Kaaba has been the Qibla, has been the focal point. Surah 2, verse 150. The amazing thing is that very similar in size and design to the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple may even have been derived from it, although that may just be a, a similarity. But the only difference here is there is no presence of God in the Kaaba. There is no inner sanctuary. Previously it had been a pagan shrine. The only unique thing it has is a black stone in the corner, Al-Hajjur al-Aswad. The Quran actually states that the Kaaba was built in the time of Abraham, Surah 2, verse 125. We made the house at Mecca, that is, a resort for mankind and a sanctuary, saying, take as your place of worship the place where Abraham stood to pray. But as I pointed out, the Quran does acknowledge the focal point of the Jews, that uh, temple, uh, Surah 17, verse 7. And in fact, it was the first Qibla of the Muslims. In Surah 2, 143, we read, We appointed the Qibla for you which you formerly observed. In those days, Muhammad's uh, initial followers, the earliest Muslims, faced Jerusalem when they prayed. And there's indications in Islamic tradition that Muhammad believed that Bayatul Maqadas was still standing. Certainly the um, Al-Miraj, the story of Muhammad's ascension to heaven, the Al-Isra, uh, his journey to Jerusalem works on the assumption that that temple was still there. Uh, it actually says that, uh, you know, Burak was actually tied to the, the little sort of metal uh, ring that all the previous prophets had tied their horses to when they went to worship there. But that's by the way. Christianity has no central shrine. Not even St. Peter's in Rome has ever been suggested as being the holy place to which all Catholics should turn and pray and that they should go on a pilgrimage there at some point in their life. We have no Qibla, even though in many countries like England, most of the churches face eastward, simply because that's where the sun rises and they see that as a symbol of the sun of righteousness arising when Jesus returns. And if you want to know why Christianity has no Qibla, no holy place, no focal point, well, you have to look at the teaching of Jesus and see why. Jesus spoke a lot about the temple in his lifetime. There was a lot of connection between him and it. I'm going to go into a few of them just to show exactly what the contrast was between Jesus and the temple. The first mention of Jesus himself being aware of the temple is in Luke 2.49 when his mother and Joseph came back to find out why he hadn't gone with them. And he said, how is it that you sought me? Did you not know I was in my father's house? Thereafter, when Jesus was <clears throat> tempted in the wilderness by the devil, we read in Matthew 4, verse 5 to 7, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels charge of you and on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Right from the beginning, though, we begin to pick things up here. And we see why Jesus, as we will see in other passages, began to draw a distinct contrast between himself and the temple once he began to minister. The thing here is, 
Firstly, that Satan takes him to the focal point of Israel. And you would think that's the last place the devil would want to take him, right to where the presence of the God was manifested at the time of Solomon originally. This indicates just how far the religion of Judaism had wandered from what it originally had been at the time of Moses and certainly when it reached its high watermark at the time of Solomon. And when Satan said to him, jump off here, what he was virtually saying is, if you are the Messiah, the Son of God, more so, if you are the Son of David, jump off here so that the people can see your glories and know who you are. When the angels of God come and protect you that you won't even injure your foot, then they will recognize you as the Son of David. You will be glorified by them. You'll be magnified. You'll be honored. And they will introduce the kingly reign and they'll put a crown on your head. Um, Jesus had other things in mind. He knew that he had come into the world the first time as the son of Abraham in obscurity to be humiliated, not to be venerated and glorified. And he recognized the essence of Satan's temptation, throw yourself down. And he knew listening to that guy, that's all that can happen if you do what he tells you to do. But shortly afterwards, Jesus went into the temples. One of the first things he did after he came out of the wilderness, and he did exactly the opposite. Instead of doing something to get everybody to bow down and say, this is our new leader, this is our new hero, he actually annoyed and aggravated them intensely. And he showed what he thought of what was happening at the temple in his time. John two fourteen to 16. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all, with the sheep and the oxen, out of the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You'll not make my father's house a house of trade. And when the Jews saw this, they said, who are you? What do you think you're doing? Have you got a sign to show us for doing this? And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. John 2 verse 19. They said, what? It's taken 40 years to build this temple. You're going to build it up again in three days? John says he spoke of the temple of his body. What Jesus was doing was to divest the presence of God away from the temple and put it on himself. In other words, destroy this temple. This is where the presence of God now lives. I am the new presence of God in Israel. I am the focal point, not a place not a locality, not a place for pilgrimage or sacrifices or anything else, but me. You see, in Islam, the Kaaba is a place of pilgrimage. In Judaism, the temple was a place of sacrifice. You were only allowed to make sacrifices there because that's where the presence of God was. In the Kaaba, you are only allowed to perform a pilgrimage there because that is where they believe the house of Allah was built originally. So that is the focal point in the two religions. But it's very important to see that the moment Jesus came into the world, he made plain that what he had come to bring would not have a geographical fixed focal point to which people should go, but rather a single individual person who is the image of the invisible God to whom people should come. The woman of Samaria is another incident where you see this coming out very strongly. She said to him, you know that uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, uh, but you Jews say Jerusalem's a place where to worship. So, you know, what do you think of that? And he said, well, woman, believe me, he said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem could have gone on, nor Mecca nor anywhere else. Will you worship the Father? 
He said, the hour now is when the, those who worship the Father will worship Him in spirit and truth, for such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, Jesus said, now that I am here on earth, true worship comes to God the Father in His Son where I am. So again, no holy places, but rather a holy person. comes out again in Matthew 12, 5 to 6, where Jesus one day walked through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And they said to him, what are you doing? You're breaking the law. This is the Sabbath law. So Jesus said, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Once again, Jesus said, well, if they were allowed on those days to officially tramp on some of Sabbath laws simply to honor the temple in its presence where God was. Well, here is the new presence of God. I am the new presence and in my presence, my disciples are plucking grains of sand. Something far greater than the temple is here. His transfiguration is another example. Time of Solomon, the glory of God was manifested in the temple, but now it was manifested in Jesus in Matthew 17 verse 5. And just where God had said, there, there you will worship me. And there will my presence be in the tabernacle. Now God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A bright cloud had previously shattered, uh, shone over the tabernacle. But now in the transfiguration of Jesus, the cloud and the brightness of God shines through him. Jesus is the new Kibla. He's the new one towards all whom all focus and all belief must be directed. As he left the temple for the last time, he said to his disciples, Matthew 24, verse 2, Truly I say to you, there is not going to be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Behold, he said to the people of Israel, your house is forsaken and desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Matthew 24, 2 and Matthew 23, 38 to 39. What he was saying is, it's like a tooth. When dentist finds that you've got an abscess in your tooth, it's become so bad that he actually just kills the nerve. The tooth can survive for a while, but it has no life in it any longer. It's only a matter of time before the whole tooth falls apart. And that's what he was saying. Your house is forsaken. The presence of God is no longer there in the temple. And then, of course, when Jesus died, uh, the Bible says in Matthew 27, 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom to show that the presence of God not only had burst out, no longer a veil between God and his people, but that the presence of God was no longer in the temple either. And we no longer had a veiled shrine, but direct access to God himself. So as he, Ephesians 2, verse 18 says, in him we are both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christians have no holy place on earth. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered, not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Same point is made by Peter in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5. Come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious. So you can see that for Christians, we do have a focal point. The focal point is Jesus himself. 
unlike the Jews or the Muslims who had a place, we have a person, and for the Christian, all his religious identification is there. I remember many years ago when I was in Jerusalem, I went into the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, and I went down in that little grotto, and I'd seen a picture of it before, the silver star in the middle of a certain spot, and there was this little bowl of oil in the middle, and um, <clears throat> around all sorts of little lamps and trinkets. And I was quite surprised when I got down there to find there were two of them. There was another one to the right as well. And this one also had a star. And while I was there, a couple of tourists came in, and one of the local priests there walked in. And he said to them, he said, you see, he said, this is where Jesus was born, without evidence as to how they knew that for certainty. He said, but some of the people, the Catholics, say he was born here, and perhaps I think it was the Orthodox say he was born here, the Greek Orthodox. He said, it's not a problem because they have even a different day. Not only do they believe Jesus was born uh, you know, in, at a different point, but he said they're even born on a different day. So they would never clash with each other because the one has 25th of December as his birthday place, and another has, the other one has this on a different day. And while I'm watching this with some confusion, an Armenian priest came down with another one leading him and bringing a, a cross. And behind him, the priest had an incense burner and he sensed both shrines. He went to the one he sensed the first one. He went to the other and he sensed that as well. I said to myself, just to make sure, <laughs> just in case he got one of them wrong. But what amazed me was to watch a Christian woman there dressed so that anybody could see by her outward dress that she was a Christian. And she went down to the one and she put her finger in the little pot of oil, took the oil and made the sign of the cross on her forehead. And you know, it was crazy. I, I stood there and I thought, this for her is probably the most important moment in her life. The most religiously, one of those golden moments that she will value for the rest of her life. And I said to myself, this is nothing but a place of religious confusion. <laughs> that was the difference between me and her. You wouldn't have known I was a Christian. I just looked like a typical casual tourist, just with some kind of passing interest in where I was. And to be quite honest with you, that's exactly what it is. I had nothing more than a passing interest. For me, the focal point is not a place, not a sanctuary, it's not a shrine. It's a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, I want to give you some interesting comparisons just to show you. And this is just for us again to understand as Christians the uniqueness of our faith as opposed to other religions and other beliefs. I'm going to name four men and I'm going to ask you to tell yourself which is the odd one out. They are Moses, Solomon, Jesus and Muhammad. And if you're awake, you'll say, excuse me, sir, it's a trick question. Depends on what context you're asking, which is the odd one out. If we said, who is the odd one in the sense of which one of these from a Christian point of view is not true to God? It's Muhammad. Moses and Solomon, uh, they were the proper, uh, prophets of God. and Jesus was the son of God. But we do not believe in Muhammad at all. On the other hand, you might say Solomon's the odd one out because Moses founded the religion of Judaism. Jesus founded Christianity. Muhammad founded Islam. Solomon didn't found a new religion. He just perpetuated what was there. Well, actually, in another context, I want to tell you that Jesus is the odd one out. Now, that might sound strange, but I'm going to ask you to listen to me very carefully. Moses, Solomon, and Muhammad. A lot of things in common that Jesus didn't share with any of them. And this will get us back to the heart of what Christian faith is really all about. Firstly, the other three all had a geographical 
focal point, as we have seen. With Moses, the tabernacle in the wilderness, with Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem, and with Muhammad the Kaaba in Islam. Exodus 33, 9-10 When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the door of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And then you read in Exodus 13, 21-22, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the, night, the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Focal point, geographical location. But Jesus is our focal point. And watch this, Luke 17, 21 20 to 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, lo, here it is, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or kingdom of God is within you. That is the focal point, not in a place, not in a sign, not in anything else. Old Testament times, that's how it was. When Jesus came, the locality of a holy place was done away with and the presence of God moved out. That's why the Kaaba of Islam is just a shell. It's just a square building and no presence of God or anything in there. But now secondly, religion was expressed at a focal point in those other three, uh, in the lifetime of the other three men. Firstly, sacrifices could only be performed at the tabernacle or subsequently the temple in Judaism. And on Yom Kippur, what we call today the Jewish Day of Atonement, the Bible says that the high priest once a year was allowed to go beyond the veil into the holy place, provided he took the blood of a sacrifice. And all of the Jewish people were called to face Jerusalem, as we saw in the prayer of uh, Solomon. When your people turn and face this place, then hear their prayer and forgive their sin. Muslims are exactly the same. They have a place that they turn and face so that they keep that focal point clearly defined. And they're not allowed to perform their Hajj pilgrimage anywhere else. You can't go to Jerusalem. You can't go to Ajmer in India. You can't go anywhere else and perform your pilgrimage. You have to perform it there. But Jesus is our focal point. John 12 verse 32. I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Solomon drew them to the temple. Moses drew them to the tabernacle. Muhammad drew them to Mecca. Jesus draws them to himself. Luke 17, verse 37. Yes, he does have a focal point. Not on earth, but here it is. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, the third interesting distinction here is this, that Muhammad, Moses, and Solomon all lived long lives. Uh, right to the end of their lives, they had more than enough time to define very clearly for their people what their purpose was. Now, Moses gave the people the law, people of Israel the law in the time that they were in the wilderness. And if you read through Exodus and you read Leviticus and Numbers and the other books of the Old Testament, you will see that nothing was left uncovered. In fine detail, Moses covered every aspect of Jewish worship, Jewish life, and Jewish behavior and conduct, so that the people could have no doubt whatsoever as to exactly what they were to do. Even the dress of the high priest was defined in detail, and uh, by the time Moses was 120 years old, he could at least die in the peace of knowing that the people of Israel had no uncertainty about exactly what they were to do.
Judaism was carefully defined. Solomon, by the time he died, the temple had been built according to exact requirements. Even the second one that followed in the book of Ezekiel, you want to bore yourself in a way, just read those fine details in the last eight chapters of Ezekiel and you find the ex every little detail defined as to how that temple was to be constructed. Even the tabernacle in the wilderness was the same. But Solomon, by the end of his life, or even at any time in his 40-year reign over Israel, at least could know, no matter what he'd done in marrying foreign wives and whatever, that he'd left a legacy, that the nation of Israel could have no doubt in fine detail that this is where sacrifices are performed. This is where the high priest goes into the holy place. This is the place towards which you pray. This is your identification as one of the people of Israel. Torah, the law, Sharia in Islam is exactly the same. By the end of Muhammad's life, you read the Quran, the law again, he had ample time, just like Solomon and Moses did, to define the religion of the Muslim people exactly. Great detail, every detail, how many times a day to pray, that was defined. You read the Hadith, um, exactly how you dressed, the beard that you wore, um, what you had to do. You read the Quran and uh, you read all those um, books of Sharia law that Muslims have written and jurisprudence and you will know that Muhammad at the end of his life could also at least say to himself well I've left my people in no doubt as to what they are to conform to what they are to perform and what they are to do but you know Jesus it's the other way around he preached he taught the people many things and they just battled to understand him you read the New Testament Gospels he didn't try to teach a whole community or a whole nation, how it should behave. He just took 12 disciples. And as they came near to the end, after three years, end of Jesus' life, they were still confused. But they might have said to themselves, well, look, you know, you're going to be around for another 30, 40 years. He's still young. We've got plenty of time to find out what he's really all about. And then that night, as Jesus was sitting with them and telling them that one of them would betray him, we read that they were discussing among each other which of them was going to be the greatest. They just weren't on the same wavelength. They weren't on the same page, never mind the same book. They were utterly confused. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after his resurrection, still didn't work him out. Uh, Lord, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? All the time, Luke says, the disciples understood none of these things and they were hidden from him. Don't you think Jesus should have had some concern that all his preaching and what, what he was doing, just all the miracles just weren't connecting. Just couldn't quite see where it was leading. And then above all, when his crucifixion came, that just seemed to shatter everything. And then he rose from the dead and that really blew their minds. Now they just couldn't work him out at all. And when they ask him on, in that lovely statement in Acts 1-8, which I always call the weirdest question in the whole of the Bible, and they say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> I just laugh, but I can see what they're saying. They're saying, when are we going to get there? You know, you always talk about the hour and the moment. And we've been waiting for this big purpose for which you came. And we've been hoping we'll get some clarity that we know when, when you're gone or when your kingdom is established, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? Um, and how you got crucified. That wasn't in the script, surely. That was right out of the blue. And then you rose from the dead. Well, we're grateful for that because it looks like we're back on track. It was almost as though, you know, God suddenly was uh, half asleep. Oh, what are they doing? You know, my Messiah, they're crucifying him. That, I, that wasn't in the script. Nope, sorry, let's sort it out. Raise him back to life. Now the disciples say, are we back on track, Lord? 
Or you're now going to declare the kingdom to Israel. And they just couldn't see that the crucifixion and the resurrection was the event that he was talking about. But you can't entirely blame them. It wasn't like Moses or Solomon or Muhammad. He hadn't given them anything. He hadn't told them on what day to worship. It was after that that they chose Sunday as the day of worship by apostolic custom. He never told them to switch the Sabbath to Sunday. He never told them which direction to pray, how many times a day to pray, whether they should have clean hands or not, whether they should go through ablutions. Oh, he didn't tell them what annual festivals, didn't talk to them about Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, virtually nothing. Catholics have seven sacraments. The Presbyterians say we don't have seven, we have two. But Jesus didn't know any sacraments. Holy Communion. Oh, now we got something. At least they had something to hold on to. I told us how to do that, so we make it part of church tradition and worship. And we do it in a very dignified way. Oh, the disciples didn't see it like that. They were just having a normal supper. And they were eating bread and drinking wine, and Jesus just took what they were eating and drinking in a supper and said, this is my body and blood, and do this as often as you do this. Eat and drink it in remembrance of me. So that one didn't look much like a religious tradition to be observed. And baptism was the one thing he told them to do, but that was just a once-for-all identification. Do you realize he never told them what songs to sing? Didn't tell them how to worship? When he went back to heaven and ascended that day to heaven after only three years among them, all he said was, cheers, guys, coming back. <laughs> Not in your lifetime, but you'll see me again, don't worry. And away he went. And they just were completely confused. You know why he did that? Because unlike Moses, Muhammad, and Solomon, his faith and his people and his community were never intended to follow a formal religion with everything set out in fine detail. Jesus did tell his disciples that something would come very soon and that that would trigger everything they needed to know. He will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you when the comforter comes. That's all he promised them. He was virtually saying to them, he will lead you into all truth. Don't worry. At everything you need to know that you don't understand now and can't work anything out, oh, don't worry. Uh, won't be long and he'll come. When the Holy Spirit came down, the Spirit of Christ into the world, a divine presence, a divine energy came. And from that day, Jesus' real church began. With the others, everything was completed by the end of their lives. With Jesus, it only really started 10 days after he had gone to heaven. And Jesus trusted everything to the Holy Spirit. His attitude at the time was very simple. I almost picture in heaven the Lord Jesus, the second person of the triune God, saying, I've laid it down, I've done everything, I've redeemed the earth. Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, are you prepared to go? Are you prepared to be my servant and take everything that I've worked to achieve? and bring it to effect, and secure it, and guarantee it, and bring it to glory. And I picture the Holy Spirit saying to Jesus, as you self-denied in a moment, and were allowed, allowed yourself to be humiliated, I'm going to be self-effacing for the rest of the time, and I'm willing to, to humbly work in your service, to bring your church together, and I'll stand back, and I'll let your glory and your work be done for your name. As Jesus said, he will glorify me, not speak on his own authority, but he hears, he will speak. I can't help smiling to myself often and saying, uh, if Jesus could trust his church to his Holy Spirit, why can't we? <laughs> Trusted it entirely to the Spirit of God to give it all its guidance, all its leading, 
and to build it up. Now, here's another one. Moses, Muhammad, Solomon had another thing in common. They all told their followers to gravitate inwardly. In other words, the closer you keep to the focal point on earth, the safer you will be. 1 Kings 8 verse 30. And hearken to the supplication, Solomon says, of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Yes, hear it yourself in your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. There again, same thing. Get close to the focal point. And Muslims think like this today. They feel very vulnerable when they are outside the Darul Islam. When they're in Saudi Arabia, when they go on pilgrimage, they feel secure. All they see are Muslims around them. Everything's fine. But once they get into the outside world and into the Western world and into other parts of the world where they're in the minority, they become very uncomfortable. They become very uneasy and they feel that the threat of influence from outside powers, from Western influence, Western decadence, this and that is going to come and hit them. Not a question just of pornography or anything like that, but just that they might be liberated in their minds to think for themselves and just question some of the Islamic traditions they've been taught. Oh, no. They often become more um, committed to Islam when they're in a minority than when they're in the majority. They tighten up because they feel we've got to hold this ummah of Islam together. And that out there is Darul Harb. That's a world of conflict. And so we must see it like that and we must put a shield around ourselves and protect ourselves. And the only way to do that is to keep as close to the focal point, the Kaaba, as possible. Now, it is exactly the same with the Jews in Israel. Also taught, stay close. Don't go and mix among the nations roundabout. Don't marry anybody from other nations. Keep close to the focal point. Stay in the land of Israel. Stay in the land of promise. Worship at the temple alone. Go to that temple. Offer your sacrifices there and so on. Every other religion, these three, both at the time of Moses and um, Solomon in Judaism, the time of Muhammad in Islam, the call was always to hold tightly, tightly to the focal point and to keep close to it. And they had all their religion laid out for them. They understood it. And they were said, as long as you do it and you stay within the safety zone, uh, the habitable zone, the comfort zone of Islam or Judaism, all will be well. Now, I've said to you already that Jesus left his disciples insecure, told them nothing. They didn't know any of the things that the Jews and the Muslims knew as far as their religion went. And do you think he told them to stay close to this or to that? Not at all. <laughs> what I love about it is he told them to do exactly the opposite. Acts 1 verse 6 to 9. When they asked him this weird question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In other words, it's all you need, nothing more. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as he had said this, as they were looking on, a cloud lifted him out of his sight and he was gone. What did he say to them? The others were told, you've got your religion, keep together, cling together, stay together. Jesus said, telling you nothing except that a power will come upon you. But when he does, burst out on the world. <laughs> Simple as that. Burst out on the world. Go and make disciples of all nations. 
Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. I will be with you. Where you go, I will go. Every Christian doesn't have to go and find a focal point everywhere. Every individual Christian has a focal point within himself. That's why Paul felt quite comfortable that he could not only go on to uh, uh, Athens by himself and said, I'll meet Silas, I'll meet you there. And he went quite alone, all by himself, up onto the Areopagus where all these Greek philosophers and others were. And he started to proclaim the gospel. You know, with respect, even Moses and Solomon, maybe Muhammad would have said, you can't do that. You can't go alone. You need to keep close to the focal point. Not at all. Paul knew where I go, Jesus goes. Where I go, the Spirit of God goes. I am the focal point. It's living in me. And that's a true fact about every true Christian believer. Wherever he goes, he is the focal point. That's why Paul was talking about going on to Spain. And then to a community. At the end of Moses' life, he had a community. Actually, he inherited it. The whole Jewish nation and his community was settled. Solomon had inherited a community as well. The whole Jewish nation and it was settled. And Muhammad created his community during his lifetime. By the end of his life, the Ummah of Islam was established. Virtually the whole of the peninsula of Arabia had come in to Islam. But Jesus had no community. When he died at the cross, four people stood there. He only had a family. His mother and an aunt were standing there. He had one male and one female disciple standing at the foot of the cross. When he ascended to heaven, sure he had a few people watching him, but only a few. But even at that stage, there was still no community. Community only began on the day of Pentecost. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus talked about his community. He said to Peter, I tell you, Peter, I tell you, Simon, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against us. By the way, this is the only community that Jesus has. His church, his body of believers. I sometimes think of heaven looking down on the church at large and saying, well, it looks bright on a sunny day, on a Sunday, everybody goes to church. And then heaven puts a filter across it and turns it to darkness. But as it does, suddenly you see little bright lights everywhere. That's the same as we do. If you look out on a normal sunny day, all you can see is a blue sky. But you wait till that filter goes across and the sun disappears and we have a dark sky. Suddenly stars appear everywhere. Stars, the descendants of Abraham. And that's what, the, what, the, what heaven sees. It sees a community of individual little lights everywhere. Everyone born of the Holy Spirit has that light within himself. That is the church of which Jesus was speaking, built not on any other foundation but Peter's testimony that you are the Son of God. And so it sees that. And those individuals, every one of them takes that light. The community of Jesus is a community of people bound by the Holy Spirit, bound by that light. It only began at Pentecost, unlike all the other communities which were there already. And lastly, the inward focus of religion, Judaism and Islam, as I've shown you earlier, Judaism is only for born Jews. Um, Islam is for Muslims living in a Mus within a community within themselves. In my country and elsewhere, one of the complaints against Muslims is whenever they're in the minority, they want to retreat into a shell and form their own societies and their own communities and they want their own Sharia law embodied into the national law like they're trying to do 
in England today. Always want to retreat into a shell and be secure. An inward focus, almost fearful focus. But Christianity, expand and grow. Nothing heaven wants more to th than to see those individual stars spreading out and in their wake more and more stars coming. It's only his kingdom that matters to the Holy Spirit. Nothing else. The Spirit of God serves and works tirelessly to promote Christ's kingdom. As I said, Jesus had an act, one single act of total self-denial. The Holy Spirit has a permanent act of being self-effacing so that the glory of God in Christ might be known. And just as Jesus did that once for all through the cross, the Holy Spirit does it all the time. Does nothing else but focus on Christ's kingdom. Um, sometimes the enemies of the gospel see things better than its friends. It's strange. I read Michael Grant's book, Jesus, recently. He's one of these typical people that just doesn't believe what's there and he thinks it's been changed. So he's on this brave quest to find the historical Jesus. That's how so much of modern scholarship works. We don't accept what's there at face value. Everything's up for grabs. Everything's negotiable. And it's almost as though the key question is, what really happened? Now let's see if we can find it, who that real Jesus was. And of course, all the time you end up with a truncated Jesus who doesn't make sense. And Michael Grant's book is no different. A sort of uh, itinerant preacher with an apocalyptic vision who eventually died as a martyr thinking he's giving his life to God. Truncated, as I said. But to Michael Grant's credit, at the front of his book, on just a single blank page before he even starts the book, he just puts one statement. Nothing matters but the kingdom. <laughs> I love that. Because that's exactly what it is. Sometimes we don't see it. We're so busy with so many other things and what have you. And then we lose sight of what the Spirit of God wants. We lose sight of evangelism. We don't even think of it. We think that maintaining the system and the church and everything else and maintaining buildings is so important. Whereas the one thing the Spirit of God is there to do is to spread that kingdom further. As Jesus said, it'll go across the whole earth. I won't come back until it's gone to the four corners of the earth. Then I'll return. This gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, must be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then I'll return. Christ's true church is scattered and hidden among the nations and even among the churches. But it's ever expanding. Let me read these words to you, which give us an indication. A couple of passages from the Gospels. Mark 4, 26 to 29. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. The earth produces of itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The Christian gospel is an expanding message and an expanding vision. Matthew 13, verses 31 to 32. Kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of air now come and make nests in its branches. With Jesus, the whole purpose is expansion. King, kingdom of God going outward. By the way, it's the only thing in this whole universe that is going forward. Everything else in this universe is going round in circles. If you don't believe me, go and read the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes and you'll see a terrible passage there about the, how the sun rises and sets and goes back to the place where it started and everything's vanity, nothing changes. I often 
look at the moon and I say to myself, what purpose does the moon serve apart from reflecting the light of the sun and affecting our tides on earth? And I say to myself, do you know that the moon's going around in at least five circles? That's all it does. It goes around in one when it rotates on its axis once every 29 days as it goes around the earth. But then it goes around in a second circle. It revolves around the earth in 29 days, exactly the same period of time. Rotates and revolves once. But then because the earth's going around the sun, it's going around another circle, it's going around the sun as well. And then if you go beyond that, we now know, of course, that the, solar, that the Milky Way is actually, we're on the, one of the wings of the Milky Way and it's rotating on its axis, so the moon's going around in that circle as well as it rotates. But scientists have now discovered the Milky Way is one of a number of galaxies that are inter-rotating among themselves. So that's a fifth circle the moon's going around. Can you believe it? It's actually going around in five different circles at one and the same time, and there may be more. But it never does anything. It comes back all the time to the same old thing. And when you look at Islam and you look at other religions and you see that it's just the same routines and at the end of your life you're doing the same thing you did at the beginning and at the beginning of your life the first thing your parents put into your ears was the kalima. There is no God but the law and Muhammad is a prophet of Allah. And at the end of your life when you're dying they just try to keep you uh, lucid enough to say same thing, no God but Allah and Muhammad is a prophet of Allah everything on this planet is just going around in circles the only thing going forward is the kingdom of God this new world, this new age this new, real new age this that's moving forward to glory and to eternity and this is what the spirit of God is about not an inward focus, which we too often in the churches are inclined to fall into, but rather an outward vision. Jesus said, John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's what he was aiming at. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy is what Isaiah 53 says, when it states, he shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. But he hasn't seen all of it yet. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Judaism and Islam, and I hate to say it, a lot of Christian communities in history are all about doing the same thing. Going around in circles, back to church on Sunday, through the same motions, I heard it said by Robert Murray McChain, who was a Scottish minister in the 19th century. He said, you know, I found in a pulpit I could say what I liked. I could tell people to burn their bodies. I could tell them to give everything they had away. And they'd come up to me often and say, wonderful message, pastor. And it seemed to me that the greater the sacrifice I called for, the more they relished it. But he said, but if I got just one of those members of my church into my study on a Wednesday or a Thursday, and I said, how about doing this or that? Suddenly they would balk. Oh, no, you know, we haven't got time for this, and we don't think we can do that, and so on. And he said, the reason is that the church sermon every Sunday was just part of routine worship for them. They didn't mind, as long as they only had to sit there, hear the sermon, do their duty, and go home afterwards. And, and that's that's the whole problem. We, we've allowed Christianity to be infected with Islamic-type thinking. And we go around in circles and we never get anywhere. Christianity is not about all doing the same thing or just doing your duty, going through the motions, least of all gravitating inwardly. Christianity is about expanding. 
It's about a vision that gets us on our feet and we go out and we reach out to a world because Jesus Christ wants more and more people to believe. He wants Muslims to come to know him. He wants everybody in this earth, if possible, to know him. And therefore, and I'm going to close with this, it might surprise you to hear it, but this is true. Christianity primarily, first and foremost, is about individuals, not about the church. It's about every individual believing disciple of Jesus being a little light, having the light within himself. That's why Paul knew this. That's why he went and he was willing even to go to Spain if need be on his own. That's why Christian tradition says that Thomas went to India. Jesus didn't say, only when 20 or 30 gather together am I there among them. He said in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there amongst them. What he wants is for the focal point to cover and blanket the whole earth, and that is himself, his presence, his glory, his kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 14, I quote it again. This gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. And the focal point is to get out right across this planet until people acknowledge the presence of Jesus, until when the Lord can put that filter across the earth, he sees lights in Libya. He sees lights in Saudi Arabia. He sees lights in every nation on earth. And then what's said in Revelation 7 will be fulfilled. I saw them from all tribes, from every people, tongue and nation standing before the throne. That's what he's aiming at and Jesus won't come back till it happens. If you are in Muslim evangelism, let me assure you, no matter how difficult you find it to be, I would encourage you to persevere in it. You just do not know what the Spirit of God is doing in using your witness to further the kingdom of God across the world. He's going to draw them. The Spirit of God is going to pull them. Nothing can stop him. He can move anywhere. He can move into Mecca. He can move right into the center of the Kaaba building itself, if need be, to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus. But on the other hand, we ourselves called. If you are not in Muslim evangelism or in any kind of it, I appeal to you to become part of the outworking of Christ's kingdom because that's where he is, that's where the Spirit of God is, and that's where he wants us to be, to reach people, especially Muslim people, and bring them to the knowledge of Jesus.